0: John chapter 18, so if you're turning your Bibles to John chapter 18, today we're going to look at a particular aspect of Scripture in which we begin to recognize, once again, how God does something incredibly evil, very, very bad, awful, terrible things taking place, that He will turn into something incredibly good. But as we prepare ourselves, I want you to look at that and kind of start reading through that right now. Let's watch this clip. speaking to us now for some 17 chapters and we've walked through chapter by chapter by chapter trying to grasp his intention. We need to remind ourselves that John wrote this some 40 years to 50 years after it took place. So John looking at the synoptic gospels and seeing what was there, has now come to the place where he said I need to write down more clearly Exactly what took happened, because some people are not grasping what actually took place. Because of that, I'm going to write down a series of things to clear up confusion and to help people understand who Jesus was, what he did, how he did it, and how that involves each one of us. Now, he walks through six different signs, he calls them, that declare to us the truth that Jesus was God himself in human form. That he was God in a bod. That he was here to speak to us concerning what truth is and what lies are. Concerning who God is and how he can work in our lives and bring about transformation as we allow his Holy Spirit to work in and through our lives. So from the changing of water into wine to the raising of Lazarus from the dead, Jesus declares, this is my purpose in life, to help people understand who God is and how they can have a relationship with him. He moves towards the final hours of his life here, and he reminds us with this simple statement as he shares in front of Pilate. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Say that with me. My kingdom is not of this world. You see, with that understanding, we begin to comprehend what Jesus was about and what he calls us to be about. My kingdom is not of this world. You see, Jesus had a clear vision concerning who he was, what he was called to do, and what would be the results of that. In the same way, we are called to have a vision A vision is reflected through the values that we share one with another on a regular, consistent basis. And sometimes those values get in the way of what we refer to as progress. And what we mean by that is that if I'm going to incorporate these values in my response to this person or this situation, I'm going to lose something. There will be a lack of personal gain in order for the vision... The clarification of who Jesus is and who I am and what God has called me to be to take place. Today, when we walk through John chapter 18, what we'll see is Peter and Judas and John and Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate. All men who have a vision concerning their life, what they want it to be, how they would like to have it seen, how they want to handle life itself. And within each one of them, we have a series of values. And those values declare how they're actually going to respond to people in relationship to this vision, what they want to take place in their life, their dream fulfilled. And as we look at each one of them, we should see ourselves and ask God, How am I inhabiting the values that you've called me to be and to have? And how am I not? In order to bring about the dream, the vision that you've placed in my life. You see, your vision must be supported by your values or it will never happen. Not in reality. Only as others look upon it will it appear to have happened. But the reality is you will look upon it and say, because my values did not support my vision, the vision itself never actually took place. The dream never truly happened. And so as we look at this picture today, I'm hoping that we can come to a grasp, and understanding of this concept or idea that my kingdom is not of this world. My vision is one that goes beyond the here and now, or as the old song used to say, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And beginning to understand what that means and how I respond to you and to my family To my other friends, to my government, to every arena in life. John chapter 18, let's read through that and you can follow along with me if you will. John chapter 18, starting with verse 1. When he had finished praying, last week we heard that wonderful prayer, the desire for unity among the church. When he had finished, Jesus left. He took his disciples and they crossed the Kidron Valley. Now, in the midst of doing this, they also crossed a brook. It was called the Kidron Brook, which that next day will run red with the blood of the Passover lamb. Because what happens is some 200,000 Passover lambs will be slaughtered, their blood will be drained into the temple. And the drainage will flow out of the temple directly into the Kidron River or creek. And that creek will literally turn red with the blood of the lamb. And as they cross this brook, I can imagine Jesus looking at it and thinking, this will be the last time that that Passover lamb truly has the meaning that it's had prior to this time. For the last time. They will see this and all of creation and all of God, when he looks upon it, will no longer see the blood of these Passover lambs. Will will see the blood of the Passover lamb, the one and only Jesus himself, giving up his blood so that they might have life. Let's continue on with the 18th verse. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. This is the garden of Gethsemane. Probably this is the private garden from someone whom Jesus knew. You have to understand that this was an area in which there were a variety of private gardens that people owned because they were unable to own it in certain other areas. So a number of private gardens located here. Somebody must have said to him, Jesus, I want you to use my garden whenever you're here to come with your disciples to pray, to share, to interact So he's gone to this garden, this particular garden in Gethsemane, and Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas came to the garden. He was guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches and lanterns and, and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and he asked them, who is it ...that you want. And they replied, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they all fell back on the ground. Now you have to understand, this is an attachment of at least 200 soldiers. That's the smallest possible. It could have been up to 2,000 soldiers... But there's at least 200 soldiers that come up into the situation with tortures. So this is quite a huge declaration. They come to Jesus, and Jesus says, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, okay, I am he. And they immediately, some kind of wind or something knocks them all down. They fall to the ground. What happened? They get back up. And Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus. And he says, okay. I'm he, you can take me, but nobody else. You see the authority that's taking place here? Jesus is in complete control, even as he gives up his life to the guards and allows Judas to approach him and to give him a kiss. Totally unnecessary. Totally unnecessary. He'd already declared who he was, what he was, what's going on. But Judas chooses to come closer to grab him and give him a kiss. This was an act of total betrayal, perhaps with a smug look on his face. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it out, and he struck the high priest's servant, cutting off the right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? And then the detachment of soldiers with his commander and the Jewish officials arrested him. They bound him and they brought him first to Annas, who was father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for all the people, making a prophetic utterance without even knowing that it was taking place. Simon Peter... And another disciple were following Jesus, and because this disciple was known to the high priest, referring to John, he went with them into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. And the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, then came back. He spoke to the servant girl at the door, and he said, you need to let Peter in. And she turns to Peter, and she says, you aren't one of this man's disciples, too, are you? And he replies, I am not, his first denial. I am not. It was cold. And the servants and the officials stood around a fire that they had made to keep warm. And Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. And then the high priest began to question Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus said, I've always spoken openly. I've always taught in synagogues at the temple where all the Jews... Come together, and I said nothing in secret. Why are you questioning me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face and said, Hold it. He said, Hold it just a minute. If I said something wrong, testify as to what it was I did wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Now, Jesus is speaking to the issue of Jewish law here. He's telling them, stop the cheating, follow the law correctly. Basically, what he's saying is, I've given myself into your hands, and you're going to have the opportunity to crucify me. At least have the decency to follow the rules that you yourself have made. You have a system of justice set up. Follow the system. It'll work. It'll work. Just not for justice. Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter, Peter was still standing there. He was warming himself. And they asked him one more time, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? And he said, No, I'm not. And then one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose Peter had cut his ear off, Malchus, he'd cut the ear off him, He turns to him and says, hold it, I I saw you, you're the one who cut off Malchus's ear. And Peter says, you're full of it. I was not there. It didn't take place. I am not one of his disciples. And at that moment, Jesus, it tells us in Luke, turns and looks him in the eye. And the rooster crows. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the place of the Roman governor. So he doesn't speak to the issue of what took place with Caiaphas. We find that in Matthew and some other areas. By now it was early morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they didn't enter the palace. Because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and he asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? He comes out of the out of the area that he's in, out of the palace, because they're not allowed to go into this area, this Gentile area. If they do, then they're not allowed to share in the Passover because they have to go through a time of cleansing. Pilate comes out and says, okay, what's going on? Why are you bringing him to me? What charges are you bringing against this man? And they said, if he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him to you. That's a non-answer. it's a political answer. If he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Well, that doesn't give me any indication of what charges you're bringing against the guy. What are the charges? Pilate just takes a deep breath and goes, oh, whatever. And he walks back into the palace. And now he calls Jesus into the palace. And after he's in the palace... He says to him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, from Matthew and another area, we find out that there was some interaction. They said, he claims to be a king. He's defying Caesar. That's treason. He should be put to death. Okay? John doesn't record that statement here. He knows it's already recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. So now, Jesus is with Pilate, and Pilate turns to him and says, are you the king of the Jews? How does Jesus begin his ministry here on earth? Do you remember what the first question is in relationship to Jesus? The wise men come from the east and they say, Where is the one born king of the Jews? These are the only two times he's referred to as the king of the Jews. During his birth and just prior to his death. And Jesus, interestingly enough, says... Is that your own idea, or did somebody else tell you that? And Pilate said, am I a Jew? Am I a part of these hypocritical, heretical, mixed up, messed up, idiotic Jewish people? That's what he's saying. I'm a Roman. Am I a Jew? Your own people and your chief priests, they handed you over to me. So what is it that you've done? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate says. And Jesus answered, well, you say that I am. In fact, the reason I was born... The reason I came into this world was to testify to the truth. And everyone who is on the side of truth, Veritas, listens to me. And Pilate cries out with the line that everybody knows about Pilate. And he says, Veritas, Veritas, what is truth? Truth. Truth. What? What is truth? And then he turns to the Jews and he says, I find no basis for the charge against him. But it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they shouted, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Father, today speak to our hearts and our minds as we begin to try to comprehend what took place and how it affects us personally in relationship to how we are to live out life and what our purpose in life is. Lead us today as we walk through these areas of truth. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Your vision in life must be supported by your values of life. Your vision in life must be supported by your values in life. Or to say it in a very crisp statement, your vision must be supported by your values. Can you say that with me? Your vision must be supported by your values. And I give you that one. It's such an important thing that Jesus is trying to teach us here through his example and his clarification and the example of the negative picture of those who do not follow through with their values. And therefore, they lose sight of their vision. Now, in John chapter 18, we're reminded of the desire of the disciples to be unified, to support Jesus in all that he does. For some three years, they've been gathering, walking with him, living with him. And suddenly, Jesus turns to him and he says, all of you are going to fall away. And Peter says the famous thing, if they all fall away, it doesn't matter. I will never fall away. I will die for you right now. And Jesus turns to him and he says, Peter, is that true? He says, before this day is over, you're going to deny me three times. Before the cock crows, before the day ends, before the new day begins. Peter hears it, but he doesn't really grasp it. Judas, interestingly enough, is the one who doesn't respond in this way or manner. As he begins to interact with them, he begins to put together a plan and intention that he's going to carry out so that he can continue to have personal gain in his life. So let's start with Judas in terms of this picture of vision and values. It says, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So you see this intense betrayal. He gave up support for gain, financial, personal status. He has a disgusting denial for most of us as we look at it. He is a traitor. He betrays him. He literally becomes the one who leads the guards to Jesus. And causes, in his thought at that point in time, the rest of the disciples to be divided forever. We even have a name for someone who does this now. We call it the Judas goat. The Judas goat. An interesting picture or idea of someone who betray you so powerfully that they would stab you in the back. A personal friend. Who would fail in this way or manner. Jesus doesn't want to get out of hand. He doesn't want a bloodbath. So he tells the soldiers. This is what you're going to do. This is how this is going to play out. You're going to take me in. I'm going to walk with you. And you're going to leave all these alone. And Peter almost messes it all up. Because he does have this intense courage about it. And he responds. He gets out his sword. And like any soldier in battle. Begins to wield the sword. And he cuts off the ear of Malchus. And Jesus is saying, Peter, I just calmed everybody down. I just established my authority. And what do you do? Dude, back up. And he heals the ear. It's his final miracle. I don't know if you ever thought of that. His final miracle. He actually heals the ear of the one who betrayed him. He heals the ear of the guard who came to take him away. The high priest, prime guy. The one who we should hate the most, and surely you can at least just have him without an ear marked. Instead, he heals him. And he tells Peter, Put your sword away. And this begins to mark Peter because now he's not sure what to do. As a soldier, he understood you fight, you get in the midst of it. But he's not sure how to handle himself now. He's put in a position that is odd to him. It's a position that he's never known before. Where he can't respond in the manner that he normally would to overcome his tendency to say and do things that would bring destruction to his life and the life of others. Judas comes in. He points out Jesus with a kiss, but soon his triumph begins to diminish into defeat as he recognizes the priest's intent all along. Now, most would say surely Judas was aware that the priest always intended to kill Jesus. It doesn't appear that way. He appears to suddenly be put in a position that he never expected to be put in. While he thinks he's going to have triumph, instead he ends up with incredible defeat. And he watched Jesus being placed in the position underneath the Romans to be crucified himself. The result is he throws away all the material gain that he had and he gives up his life, either in suicide or in some manner that we're not sure of because of extreme depression. And it's the last we hear of Judas. He's never mentioned again. simply tells us he dies in this special field that from now on is referred to as a a field of blood. Materialism, desire, it all falls away. And even when he tries to repent, he is unable to respond. He's unable to truly repent and instead ends up encountering death. Now, Peter is a whole different picture of someone who has a, a vision and values that he's fallen away from. Peter's vision was of unity, but his personal support is gone. He's no longer been able to respond in the manner that he easily would have. He's the last one that any of us would ever expected to respond through denial. He's it. He's the rich Rapoli. If I was to use somebody that we know here, he's the guy that I go. Oh, no, rich will be right there. He would. Oh, are you kidding me? That's never going to happen. Lee might, but Rich won't. It's just a different sense of who the person is. Peter is this powerfully strong, capable guy who will do whatever it takes, even if it means dying, to establish his legacy, his vision of unity with Jesus. I will die with you before I would ever deny you. And yet he finds himself in this position where, as the result of fear, that overwhelms him, he responds in denial of who Jesus is. Interestingly enough, the very act that was made to declare his courage, the cutting off of the high priest, Malchus' ear, the high priest's servant, is the one in which he is identified as the disciple of Jesus and he falls away in denial. Peter leaves in tears and in sorrow, wondering what's going to happen now. Total depression. What's going to happen now? And then we see John here, who was supposedly trying to help Peter out. He brings him in. And Peter's on the outside, along with the rest of the other disciples. And he brings Peter inside the courtyard because John has a relationship with the high priest. He brings him in. And the result of him bringing him in is he puts him into a position that ultimately results in denial and in defeat in his life. I go, John, what were you thinking? Why did you do that to Peter? He thought Peter was strong enough. It wasn't going to be an issue. And John never speaks in his support. He remains as a spectator off to the side, watching all that's going on, but choosing not to respond. Values always cause response. You see, the problem about having a set of values that you identify, we have a set of values here at the church. We said we we're called to be light to the world. And we said that means we to be loving. We're to be inviting. We're to be grace givers. We're to be holy. We're to be true. But in order for those values to find reality, they must be expressed. Those values say, this is what I will do when I get in this situation. This is how I will respond. You see, the Scripture tells us that we need to paint the picture of our life with the brushes of the promises of God. That as we recognize truth and the need for self-denial... I'd really, if there's the biggest thing I would say to anybody, the need for self-denial, the struggle that I see over and over as I share with couples, as I see marriages breaking down and families broken up, is a lack of self-denial. A lack of self-denial. When we see the truth, we recognize our need to be involved in self-denial. Our behavior changes. We begin to reflect our actual Beliefs. You see, a vision without corresponding values is like a, a car. I saw it my uh, uh, mechanics here the other day. He had it sit on a set of, set of blocks so the tires could move or sit on top of this thing. And then he would start the car up and it would run. And those suckers would fly. <clears throat> now, my would be going. He must have been going like 60 miles an hour. But it wasn't going anywhere. And that's a picture of I've got this dream, this vision of what I want to have happen in my life. This is this is my legacy I want to have, but there's no there's no rubber on the road. There's no reality. There's no acting out of values to accomplish that vision. And that's the difficulty. That's the struggle. And Peter finds himself suddenly in this position where for the first time in his life, his values are no longer being reflected. He's not courageous. He's not loving. He's not caring. He's not uniting. He's fallen and he's failed. You see, you can't tell me what you believe. Oh, you can. But here's what I've learned now that I'm getting older. is you can tell me anything you want to tell me, I watch you. I just watch you and I figure out what you actually believe. All I've got to do is watch you. And in about a year, I'll know who you are and who you aren't. And I won't be mad at you. I won't be upset. I'll just say, oh, now I know who you are. I know who you are Because your values are spoken by your actions, not by your speech. Oh, the speech declares them, but the actions show who you really are. If you're willing to deny yourself in situations that that's called for or not, or if you constantly are talking about what your rights are and what you should gain. You see, the vision starts off For the disciples in John 17 is a vision of unity. It has clear values, but personal gain will destroy all of them. Whether that be personal gain of safety, personal gain of release from fear, personal gain from materialism, whatever it may be. If you're unwilling to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus' call, you'll never experience the fulfillment of your vision. It's not free. It's very, very costly, as Jesus shows in his declaration of his values time and time again here, as he walks through it with courage and authority and clarity. This is why I was born. This is why I came. This is what I will do. And this is what will be the result. For this purpose, I came into this world to speak truth, to declare truth, to show people who God is and how they can respond to him. You don't tell me what you believe. You show me what you believe. Your vision will be supported by your values. And I will find out what your vision is, not by your tell me what it is, but by looking at your values and I will know what it is. The next vision here is one of truth, of veracity. And it fails because people try to build it with the values of duplicity. That's a nice way of saying, if you have a vision of truth, you can't build it on a foundation of lies. If you have a vision of truth, you can't build it on a foundation of lies. You have to come out of the darkness. Truth demands light. Truth demands reality. Reality. Truth demands dealing with these things that I don't want to deal with, that I don't like about me and I don't like about the situation I'm in. But truth says you respond to it and you watch God change because you have a vision of truth. And so therefore you choose not to build it on lies. You can't build a house of truth on a foundation of lies. So Jesus says, in fact, the reason I was born and came into the world was to testify to the truth. Not just recognize like a king, but act as a king. He was the king of kings of all. And you could recognize it by his life. He said, I don't have to say I'm a king. You say I am. Because you recognize who I am. And so will the rest of the world. But I must do something now because I am a king. But not of this world. It's this world that I must save. And he accomplished it by going through two different justice systems. The first so-called justice system is the religious one where he walks into Annas and Caiaphas. Now, you're probably going, "Holy! it, has got two different high priests here. Well, Annas is what's called the Jewish high priest. He was recognized by the Jewish people as the high priest of all the people. And that particular position was to be one forever. It was a lifetime position. Supreme Court justice. Give you a clear picture. So that's who Annas was. So he's recognized by the Jews as the high priest. Caiaphas was the high priest who was determined by, can you figure out who? The Roman government. So the Roman government declared he will be the high priest who will interface between us and the Jewish people. And we will choose who that will be. Now, then it says something to you. It says he was the son-in-law of Annas. In fact, if you went back through history, you'll find out that all four of Annas' sons were also high priests. Interfacing with the Romans and the Jews. And you begin to understand how powerful Annas is. Not only is he the high priest who has been directed by the Jewish people, but he is a very powerful, rich, and ambitious man who has complete control. He is, you know who he is, he's the Godfather. I think that's the best picture of him. He's the godfather. He calls all the shots. He determines what will be and what will not. You kiss his ring when he puts it in front of you. And you do it, not just willingly, but with a sense of submission and honor. That's Annas. Now, interesting enough, the way in which Annas would get most of his funds was through the temple sacrifice and the temple sacrifices... Now, remember Jesus when he first starts his ministry? And he goes right to the temple. And what does he do in the temple? Yeah, he chases all the money changers and all these guys out. The money changers who are getting a huge amount of dollars by selling special sacrifices at a special price are put there by Annas, who receives the profit, whom Jesus has once again shown up at the very end went to the temple and kicked them all out again. Now picture this. The first person Jesus is going to be seen as he brought the Lord to the legal system to be put to death is Annas. He's looking at him and he's gloating. I got you now. I got you now. You're a dead man. Well, we'll go through the process. But you're a dead man. That's the picture That Jesus brings and that Peter understands as he's standing here in front of the high priest. And the fear begins to grow and it's tension and it's a fear of supernatural origin. It is so incredible. The feelings are like electricity everywhere. Folks, this night was a night of nights. No one ever experienced anything like this. The intensity of fear, I understand how Peter fell. Because this is so overwhelmingly powerful, he's unable to resist it. He's standing against Satan and all his compadres. And he's unable to resist. As any of us would have been unable as well. The justice system... Of the Jewish people that God had set up is now being used to put to death God himself. He'll move to Caiaphas, he leaves Caiaphas, he shows up before Pilate, and now we see the Roman justice system put into place, the system that was considered to be the best justice system in the world at that point in time. He's brought to Pilate, and Pilate begins to recognize what is going on that his Roman-appointed high priest is actually saying, Okay, Pilate, it's your turn. Take care of this. We can't execute him. You can It's time to pay up. It's time to pay. You owe me favors. It's time to pay up. If you don't, we will go over your head one more time. Because they've gone over his head a number of times in a number of situations to Pilate, who was an intensely zealous Roman And had put to death Jew after Jew on the basis of their treason before Caesar, not honoring him as God. So now they say, Pilate, it's time for you to step up. Give us what we want. And Pilate does everything he can to remove himself from the position where he himself will be responsible not so much that he's concerned about the death of Jesus, but responsible for the thought of the idea that he himself has given in to the favors of these Jewish people that he hates. Am I a Jew? They're the ones who brought you in here. And Jesus responds in another section and he says... Pilate, you got to understand something. Regardless of what you think, the only reason you're able to do what needs to be done is because God has already determined that it's to be done. End of statement. Amazingly enough, both of these men, Annas, Caiaphas, Caiaphas and Pilate, will all see the prophecy of Jesus specifically taking place that they accuse him of here of the temple being torn down stone by stone in 70 A.D. when some one million Jews will be put to death as a result of an uprising that Titan, the emperor, will put down and reassert authority over Jerusalem by the Roman Empire. You see, Jesus teaches this over and over again. This kingdom is not my kingdom. This is not the kingdom that my followers are to follow. My kingdom is not of this world. You are to deny self, to take up your cross of personal sacrifice, to follow him. If you're to gain true contentment and fulfillment of your purpose in life, if you're to have your vision fulfilled, you must establish the values that God has called us to have in your life, or you won't find any fulfillment. You will never find contentment. You will never gain a recognition that your purpose has been fulfilled. A few last thoughts here because I want to touch on this just a bit. Um, The other day they said I was too early, so I'm going to stop that today. We're not going to be too early today, okay? They said next door, they were, it was too quick, it was too early, kids didn't have enough time, we needed to go through this singing time, so you guys get the benefit of dealing with that. A couple of thoughts, I want you to ponder. The first one is the one that Jesus says over and over and over again. And that's this, our king is not of this world. Our king is not of this world. Jesus teaches us that a vision of unity and truth is one that we will not consistently see take place in this world. His kingdom is not of this world. It will never be established here in perfection and totalness. We see that over and over again in churches, don't we? How many of you have seen that in churches? Come on. Have you seen that in churches? Yeah. I, I wish it wasn't. Now, that does not mean we are dismissed or that we're not to be involved in establishing the values that God has called us in our life. What it does mean is that sin will continue to be dominant in our lives, in the lives of people around us, if they don't allow Jesus to put it to death through the cross. We're called the ecclesia. That means we're the called out ones. We're the called out ones. We're not called to conquer We're called out of the world into a new kingdom to try and discover the kingdom that he wants us to have. Secondly, God doesn't blame us for our failures, for our inadequacies, for our inabilities. But he also doesn't excuse us. God doesn't blame us. He doesn't blame Peter, but he doesn't excuse him. We're to learn from those areas where we have fallen and failed. We're called to be holy, to be set apart, distinct from that which is part of this world. God forgives us, but he doesn't say that we are okay. Peter is forgiven, and he's called to values of true love, not personal gain, not anything other than this. Feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. We're no longer sinners who sometimes do good, but saints who sometimes sin. Okay? Um, Even this thing's messing up now. God uses in our life poor choices and failure to bring about much good. God uses evil and poor choices to bring about much good. Jesus talks about this section now in Luke 22, and he says, for now, darkness reigns as he walks into this last day for now, darkness reigns. You see, God works all things for good, but not all things are good. God works all things for good, but not all things are good. We're not to call the acts of God responses from Satan or the acts of Satan responses from God. Tolerance and diversity are not primary virtues. Unity and truth are. Jesus teaches us we must deny ourselves, take up our cross of personal sacrifice, and follow Him if we're to gain true contentment in life and fulfillment of our purpose, of our vision. Next thought we're called not to be successful so much as we are called to be faithful. We're not called so much to be successful as we're called to be faithful. The crown that we're called to wear is more often one of thorns than it is of gold. And that should be not just acceptable, but understandable. We need to grasp this truth. Jesus says, will I not drink of this cup that the Father places in front of me? It didn't say he desired it. It didn't say that he enjoyed it. He said, I have to drink of it because it fulfills the purpose that God has set for me. And you and I are in the same way. There are times that God calls me to drink of a cup that I don't want to drink. I want to drink. God, why would you give me this cup? I don't want to drink it. And God says, Lee, what are your values? Do you value love? Well, yeah. Do you, Lee, do you, do you value being true? Yeah. Do you value holiness? Yeah? Drink the cup. Drink the cup. That's the cry of this section of Scripture is Jesus calling us and saying, you have a vision. You will only fulfill it if you hold on to your values. And when you fail, Come to me and recognize that I can not only forgive you, I can lift you up and enable you to be far more than you ever were before. So Peter becomes this marvelous man of God who willingly gives of his life later without any problem as God changes his heart and his ability to respond. And he does the same for each of us here. It's not about have I failed. It's about Lord, what's the future? Grant me forgiveness. It's the ABCs. We admit that we're a sinner. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God who who died for me for my sins, who provided me with the opportunity to be cleansed and made whole again. And I must simply confess and commit to Him as Lord and as Savior. And then life begins to make sense. That's values. That's vision. That's what it's all about. Pete, come on up. Let's close. Father, we thank you for this chance we've had today to remind us. This is a horribly difficult chapter, Lord. As I read it, my heart is just, wow. The things that you were willing to do, the values you so clearly expressed. I want to be that man. I want to act in that manner. I want, I want to be like you. Lord, today we come to you because we want to have a vision that's greater than ourself. A vision of our purpose in life. As well as a clarification of the values that we're to buy. So that we might give all that we have to gain something that's worth gaining. Lord, today we come to you and we ask that you might show us what that is and how to live that out. Well, thank you as you do. Use us in accordance with your will. This day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I Amen. as Amen. Pete shares there, maybe a prayer or a question.